got a Bible or a smartphone or some device, you'll be looking at the Scripture with us this morning. Uh, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 23. 2 Samuel 23. Um, so, uh, for the, for outside of just a few weeks of the year, we are primarily teaching through a book of Scripture, just straight through, chapter by chapter, working our way through it. And so we have been working through First and Second Samuel, I think since September, um, and, and this morning we will complete our time um, as we wrap up Second Samuel. And just uh, as a brief recap, um, although if we tried to really recap it wouldn't be very brief, um, that First uh, and Second Samuel is, is a history book, right? It is telling the story of God's people moving from a period of more like tribal leadership to having a king, to having a monarch. Um, and, and then David's role in that as the second king and his line basically being blessed that it would have the throne forever, knowing that that ultimately is pointing us to Jesus, that as great as a, of a king as David is, he's not the king that we're looking for. And so you kind of have these, these two handholds happening, that you have history being shown, taught, revealed, and the character of God in the midst of it. All right, and so let's pick up in, in chapter 23, beginning in verse 1. Um, now, these are the last words of David. And as a brief, just aside here, um, because it's a history book, it's not always chronological. All right, so you would think this would then be the end of it. It's not, right? We basically have here the last things that he said. It's, it's presented here. There will be some more interaction later. So just bear, bear with the editor. Now, these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For, he will, not, for will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. We're going to stop there for just a moment. And we basically kind of have David um, giving his own brief biography. Right as he is an old man, um, we, you actually won't see his death until you turn over to First Kings. And in the first couple chapters, we have the transition from David to his son Solomon and the death of David. We won't see that here in, in 2 Samuel. But that he says, listen, I, I'm speaking as the son of Jesse, as the one who was raised on high. He doesn't claim that he grabbed the throne and kept it, but that God put him on the throne. That I was the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. He's just kind of summing up his life in, in, in a lot of brevity. I'm talking about how he has been placed on the throne by God. And in verse 3, he says, The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. And he gives two things. He says, 
when one rules justly over men, right? And, and it's just this idea that when we have a good and right and holy king or leader, right, that people are dealt with justly. That, that, that leadership is meant to reflect the character of God. And leadership that is doing that then is benefiting the people, right? That they are being dealt with justly and equitably. Right? It, it's really it's tying us back into Genesis 1 and 2 and the idea of creation, that before the fall of man, when God was walking with Adam and Eve in the garden, right? when he is out there, that, that it is, everything is harmonious. And that Adam was told to, right, to, to go, to bear, right, to, to, and to take over creation and to serve it and to lead it well. That we're seeing this tied back into creation that a leader, a right and good king, is going to rightly reflect the character of God. And then he goes on to say, ruling in the fear of God. So he's saying he's also going to have the right perspective, that he's not the ultimate authority, that he's not the one who really needs to clamp down, that he is a servant of God himself, that he is serving as, as a, an underling of the one who rules and controls and is sovereign over all the world. So he says a good leader is going to rule justly. And we saw David do that a lot, although he didn't do that perfectly. And he's going to have a proper perspective, a right understanding of who God is. And so that godly leadership, the people should thrive under it. And that is what creation looks like with God at the helm. It's what leadership under his authority should look like, whether that is in business or in politics or in church or in a family, right, that with healthy and good leadership, that those around flourish and thrive. And so we've seen Israel flourish and thrive for the most part under David, although he is not by any means perfect, and that there has been issues and coups and wars because of his sin, right, that we've seen both, that when he is leading well, the people thrive, and when he's not, the people suffer. That David is not the king that we're waiting, that we're hoping for, that will make all things right and all things better. He gives some of the benefits. So when a king is ruling this way, in verse 4, he dawns on them like the morning light. He just is poetic. Like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. But he's just saying like there is a benefit to godly wisdom and godly leadership. And so what we see here is this theme of First and Second Samuel of the people needing godly leadership, but also realizing that David isn't the guy. Like, he isn't going to be the one that's going to make everything right for all time, that we're going to need someone better than David. In the rest of chapter 23 then, um, again we see, so he's given us kind of the theme of the book, that we need godly leadership, and that David's not it. And then we also see in chapter 23 the practicality that this is a history book. And so beginning in verse 8 through the rest of chapter 23, it tells the exploits of some of David's mighty men. And so David had basically a group of 30 men um, that he kind of kept that were his mighty men. There were more than 30 men listed because some of them die and they're replaced. But he basically had a group of 30 that were his special forces. That, he, that did an incredible work for him. And so we're reminded that David alone wasn't the only one who was doing 
great and mighty things that God had employed with him other men who were leading and serving and fighting well for the sake of Israel and for the glory of God. And so they're listed to give honor to them. Look at, listen to one of the stories down in verse 15. And David, so they're basically hiding away in a cave. They're in the middle of battle. He's, th- he's thinking back in, in a, a former time. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. So basically he's homesick, right? And he's thinking back to the water that he drank growing up and how sweet and good it was. And then three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried it and brought it to David. But he wouldn't drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. So I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives. Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. So basically David right, is in a cave. He's talking about it. He's like, man, it would be great to have some water from home. And these dudes are just that impressive that they're like, the king wants it? The king gets it. And without telling him, they sneak off, break through the enemy line, and get water out of a well and take it back to the king. And they're like, hey, you said you wanted some Bethlehem water. Here you go. And in that moment, right, David realizes a couple things. One, my men are fiercely loyal to the point that they put their own lives at risk. And so drinking this would be selfish, right? Like, I, sh- I shouldn't have probably said that out loud. Only God deserves that kind of response and loyalty. And so he basically pours the water out as an offering going, God, I should not be honored in that way that these men would give their lives for to you. And he pours it out as like a, a libation, like an offering, right? Going, I don't, that's not the kind of devotion that I'm looking for for me it's the kind of devotion that we want to have with God. And so it begins, it just continues, and it lists these men and some of the mighty works that they do. One of them is listed in verse 21. And as he's talking about, you know, that he, he fought and struck down a lion in a pit on a snowy day. And then in verse 21, then he goes up against an, an, an Egyptian mercenary soldier, and the guy's armed with a spear, and all this man has is a club. And it basically says he took the guy's spear away from him and killed him. It's just saying, like, he was a bad dude. Like, he, he won when he shouldn't have won. And so 23 is just listing out some of the exploits of these men who had served David well throughout his reign as king. So I want us to pick up, though, in, in chapter 24. Because as much as we can applaud David, we, we have to remember right that there that Israel's desire for a king was ultimately a rejection of God. Right? Like that he had cared for them. He had fought their battles. He had provided for them. He had led them. He had guided them. And so David is a good and godly king. But there had still been a rejection of God's kingship over them. And so we're going to see the flip side of this is chapter 23 kind of lists out some of the glory. Pick up in verse 1 of chapter 24. And again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people that I may know the number of the people. 
But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? For the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began with Aror, and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites, and they came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon, and came to the fortress of Tyre, to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites, and they went out to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. And when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel there were eight hundred thousand valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were five hundred thousand. And so we kind of have this strange scene of like, we're ending with a census? Right? Like, and, and so remember, this is not chronological at this point. And yet we see in verse 1 that the Lord is angry about this. Look at verse 10. David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people, and David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant. And so we see like this census is a big deal. First Chronicles, which will lay out much of the same story of First and Second Samuel, actually doesn't tell the story of David's sin with Bathsheba, right? That it, but it tells of this as being one of his primary sins. So you're like, wait a second, why why is the census such an issue? We we can see in in the Pentateuch and Numbers and Exodus that censuses were allowed. That was not the sin, was not in taking a census. But they were given by God for direct purposes. What's happening here is really that a, a hidden motivation is being revealed. That David is at a point now where he is finding pride in the number of people and the significance and the, and, and the largeness of his army. He's finding security no longer in God. He's finding security in the size of his army. Where before, right, David is the one as a young man who goes out and fights Goliath, right? God has already shown him multiple times in his life. It's not the size of the army that matters. It's not the size of the dude in the fight that matters. It's whether God is for you, whether God is with you. And so he's beginning to show some pride here, some self-reliance, some security in things other than the faithfulness of God. It was never about numbers. It's about, is God for you? Or is God against you? Right? We, and we can think about this even in regards to how we show up to church on Sunday morning. Right? Do we show up with a sense of like, desperation of God, what I need is you? I, don't, I, I know a service is going to happen. I know there will be some people there. I know we'll, we'll go through the things, but like, God, will you meet with us? And this week as I was looking through this passage, it reminded me, and many of you have heard me talk about the very first Sunday we ever had a service 10 years ago at Redeemer. We're in a living room and like almost having a panic attack walking up to this house going, we're about to have church this morning and nothing about this looks, smells, feels, seems very churchy. And, and in that moment going, I've got to find a way to throw some church on it so that people won't think that I'm a fraud. And the Spirit stopping me 
and saying, you're exactly where I want you. Because I'll show up, and I'll receive the glory, or this shouldn't happen anyway. Right? Like that it's not about your ability to do something, or, or this church, it's about, is, this, is the Spirit of God moving among His people? And so there was a level of desperation of like, oh, please, Jesus, show up. Because there is nothing here to compel or to draw anyone. And it's one of the reasons why we continue to have simplicity here. right? Is because we don't want to fool people into thinking they've been entertained for a while. We want them to meet with God and to leave here on a Sunday morning going, I met with the living King of the world. Right? Or I did not. But not that I was entertained. You would know. That it would be clear. And yet, I did not nearly have a panic attack walking in this morning. And so as I'm looking through this and thinking about David being desperate before the Lord and then beginning to find pride and his security in numbers and things other than the Lord, right? I have to remind myself, like, we, we still desperately need the Lord. We're not in a living room any longer. But there's nothing I can do this morning to compel anyone to salvation. There's nothing I can do to bring hope or peace or healing that we are still merely the waiter going, look at what the chef has presented. Spirit of God, would you move among us? And we could more easily fool ourselves this morning into thinking we've accomplished something or we've done something or we need the Lord a little less and we would be boldly prideful and ignorant and misguided and sinful in thinking that we don't need the Spirit of God to move among us this morning to reveal His Word and to stir our hearts. We have not figured out a way of doing things at Redeemer that make us not dependent on God. And may we never, would we want no success that doesn't come from the hand of God? And so what is happening here is David has this kind of hidden ulterior motive that's going on, and the Lord simply saying, I'm going to bring it to light. David, for your good, I'm going to bring it to light so that you can confess your sin and you can repent. I'm going to let people know that you're not taking stock of me as much right now. You're taking stock in them. In Exodus 30, verse 12, it says, When you take a census, every man who could fight in the army should give a half a shekel. Right? It's kind of like a tax. It was not a lot of money. It says if you're rich, you don't give more. If you're poor, you don't give less. Every man gives it. And why? It was a reminder that I don't belong to me. I belong to God. That I'm His. And then I'm a part of this with him. You'll notice David does not have a tax. He's saying these people are mine. He has forgotten the Lord in this census. And so God is going to bring judgment upon him. His motivations are going to be revealed. Now listen, verse 1, did you notice it? A little bit disconcerting. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, right? Like they've disobeyed him. And he incited David against them, saying, go and number them. Like he's revealing multiple issues and motivations, not just with David, but with the people. That they're beginning to take pride in the fact that they're a stronger, mightier nation, that they have a good king, and that nations might fear them. But in 1 Chronicles 21, it'll say this. Instead of saying the Lord incited to Satan incited. And look at verse 10. 
But David's heart struck him after he numbered the people. So we have in verse 1 that God did this. In 1 Chronicles 21, about the same instance, Satan is the one inciting it. And in verse 10 here it says, and David was like pains, right? Like he confessed, I've sinned against the Lord by doing this. So which is it? Did, did God do this? Did David do this? Did Satan do this? The church, we know that there are truths that seem contradictory all throughout Scripture that we have to wrestle with. Right? Like the glory of God that wants to fill the earth and wants His renown and His fame to be known. And the holiness of God that wants to pull back from anything that's not holy. So you have this tension of God's glory going out and His holiness pulling away. Right? We have Paul saying, I worked harder than anyone. Effort. But by the grace of God did anything happen. Right? That we work hard and we put forth effort. And yet we know it's by the grace of God that anything happens. It's like, which one of them is true? Is it effort or is it grace? Is it glory? Is it holiness? The wrath of God that is poured out against sin that needs to be satisfied or the love of God that is made away. Right? These things can seem mutually exclusive. They can seem at odds. They can seem to be at war with one another. And so what is going on here? Which is it? Did Satan do this? Did God do this? Did David do this? And Pastor Spurgeon in London, 100 plus years ago, would say, listen, how do we reconcile this? We don't. Because you don't need to reconcile friends. There are twin truths that we have a hard time reconciling, but they're not meant to be reconciled because they're both true. Go back to, to Exodus for a moment and think about Pharaoh. During the scene of all the, the plagues happening, multiple times it talks about Pharaoh's hard heart. And it's, it's worded three different ways. It'll say Pharaoh hardened his heart multiple times. It'll say God hardened Pharaoh's heart multiple times. And then there's the ambiguous Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Right? This is kind of like, what, wait, well, who's doing that one? Right? Like that there is responsibility for multiple, multiple involvement here. And the place that we see this most clearly, right, that these truths are twin, that we are responsible, and that God is doing things that is in the, at the cross. Listen to how this is written about in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. During one of the, the sermons in Jerusalem, it says, Men of Israel, hear, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Right? God's involvement in this. You, now we're switching, crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That both of those statements are true, that God was not taken aback by it, that it was a part of a plan and foreknowledge, and you're responsible for killing him. These twin truths, that God's involved and we are responsible. Listen, we have a finite mind. And so you if you if you can figure this out and like sum it up in a in a way, you would be the first to do that. But listen to Paul in Romans. As he writes about God, this is Romans eleven thirty three. 
Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor, or who has given to Him a gift that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. And so there is a point in this that if we feel like we have to understand this, listen, we're not lazy people. We're not a people who don't wrestle with hard things in Scripture. But there are things that are above and beyond our finite mind on this side of heaven. And if we say, nope, unless I can understand, I can't deal with God, like that is prideful and arrogant. We want God to be bigger than us, to be more than us, to be substantially more than us. And so we see God at work here. We see David's responsibility, and we are reminded that we have an enemy. God is in control, church. That is true. Scripture teaches it. We can have security in that. He is in control. He is sovereign. He is merciful. We have an enemy in Satan who is prowling around looking to devour and to destroy. And we are responsible for our actions. All of these things are true. And all of these things are tied together. And you can have some questions for God. Okay? All right. Let's, let's, let's move on here. Look down at verse 13. So basically, um, David, has, his heart has struck him. He's realized he's sinned greatly. Gad, the prophet, comes and says, Okay, you've, you've sinned. You've recognized that the Lord's given you a, a choice of how you're going to be punished. Like, what a terrifying op- like, proposition. And he basically tells them you can have three years of famine. You can have three months where an enemy will come in and and wreck shop in Israel. Um, Or you can have three days of pestilence, like of a plague in your land. Verse 13, Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hands of man. And basically what David says here is this, like, I know God is merciful. I know God is gracious and that He is kind. And judgment is coming. Discipline is happening. I don't want it to be in the hands of another nation, uh, hands of people. Let God do what He deems best. So he's basically saying, I'll take the three days, not because it's shorter, but because I'm in the hands of God. I can trust God's character. And He will not give us more and then we can bear that He will take us out of the refining fire right at the right moment, that He is not spiteful, right? that He's not looking to punish, that He is disciplining. So pick up in verse 15. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem to destroy it, The Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It's enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. And David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came up that day to David and said to him, Go, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. 
And basically, he, he asks him, I want to buy this land. Uh, Aruna offers to give it to him. He says, no, I, have to, it can't cost me nothing. Verse 24. But the king said to Aruna, no, but I will buy it from you for a price, and I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And so the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. Period. The end. The book's over. And you're like, can we put this up for potentially like worst ending of a book in Scripture? Right? Like think about chapter 20. Right? We, we, we get to the end. And it lists like everything is ordered and restored, and here's David's cabinet, right? Like, okay, some conclusion, right? At the end of chapter 21, we have stories of all the giants that, that David defeated. Okay, that's a great, like, victorious ending. The end of chapter 22 is the, is the, the psalm that David has written. It's Psalm 18. You're like, okay, the poet, King David. All right, that's a great place to end. Even at the end of chapter 23 is the renown of the mighty men. Right? And you're going, okay, we're ending on a victorious moment. And then chapter 24 comes, you're like, what a letdown. Like David has sinned, the Lord has judged, 70,000 people have died, and then it's like, and the crisis is averted as sacrifices are made, period, the end. And it feels broken. It feels difficult. Like, why, why this? But I want you to listen. This is Second Chronicles, chapter three, verse one. Solomon, who was David's son, began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place David had appointed on the threshing floor of the Jebusite. Like, whoa, wait a second, what's going on here? David is being tied here both to the past, to the present of what God is doing in the world. Mount Moriah is where Abraham offered Isaac up as a sacrifice to God, trusting in God's provision and that the possibility of resurrection if he had to go through with it. Trusting God's character and His mercy in His hand. And now here, David is buying it and offering sacrifices, saying, God, bring atonement. Like, don't let our people suffer and die. Like, I have sinned. And then later, Solomon is going to take the same spot that is holy, that sacrifices have been made on, where Mount Moriah, where Abraham was, and he's going to build the temple, where God is going to meet with his people until the true temple steps into human history. And Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, who tabernacled among us. And so what we're seeing is, is David is being tied to Abraham, the one, the father of the nation, who was told, you're going to bless the entire world through your lineage. And David is being told, you're the king, and your throne will never go away. And then the temple comes on the same site until the day that Jesus steps in the human history and lives the life that we were meant to live, is crucified and crushed on our behalf, and is resurrected. Listen to what David says. Um, he, he asked them, he says, listen, in verse 17, David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people, and he said, behold, I have sinned. 
And I have done wickedly. But these sheep, right? He goes back to his young days of being a shepherd. These sheep, the people of Israel, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Like, do it. Like, punish me. Punish my family. Like, let spare them. Jesus is the good shepherd who comes for the sheep, who is from David's lineage. And the punishment does fall on him. The hand of the Lord is stayed here until it falls on Jesus. Like, we're the sheep. And Jesus is crushed with the wrath of God out of love for us to rescue and to secure us and to bring us back to the Father. This strange ending to 2 Samuel is our story that we are connected to Abraham, that we are connected to David, that we are connected to the temple, that we are connected to Jesus. Look at verse 25. David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings, and the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. A greater enemy was coming to us than a plague. It was sin, and it was Satan, and it was death. And God was satisfied by the sacrifice of Jesus to avert the plague upon us, to bring peace to the land once and for all, for all time, through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Then judgment happens, and the guilty don't get it. The innocent one did so that the guilty would be made righteous and whole and innocent before God. David trusted himself to the mercy of God and received it. Church, this morning, will you trust yourself to the mercy of God who knows your deeds, your heart, your hidden ulterior motives and motivations, the things you've done and the things you've wanted to do, the things that you've forgotten that you've done because you hid them so far away. And he's saying there is judgment for those and it can fall on you. And you'll be like in chapter 23, the thorns that are ripped from the land. Or it can fall on Jesus on your behalf, and you will be a son or a daughter of the King. Invited to the table for all time with the good Father. Jesus demonstrated His love for us, Romans 5, while we were still sinners at the cross. That is the story of 2 Samuel, and it's our story. That we have hope in these things. So this morning, we're going to end with a time of worship, right? Where we respond to the character of God, to the Word of God as it's been revealed to us this morning. And if you need someone to talk to, to pray with, and this Sunday or any Sunday, we expect God to stir and to move. That's what we're asking Him to do. And so you can respond and have someone pray for you or someone talk to you in the back of the room. We, we can stand and sing to our King. We can sit and let the words wash over us. And this morning, we also have the Lord's Supper set up in three locations. And you can get up at any point during the next three songs. right? And remember that it's His body that was crushed so that your body isn't in the bread. It's His blood that was spilt instead of yours in the juice. And it's because of that that the crisis, the plague, was averted. That you have peace with God this morning. You are one who is walking with Him because of Jesus, not because of anything that you've done. Because of His kind and merciful hand. 
If you don't know Him, would you respond to the Good Shepherd wooing you and saying, this is your story too. Come, trust, and believe this morning. Let's pray. Father, this morning, for those of us in the room who are rescued people, would You once again remind us of the crisis that has been averted because Jesus was crushed on our behalf. That it was a costly rescue. God, for those who don't know You, how would You stir in their heart that there's nothing they need to do, there's nothing they need to wait for, there's nothing that needs to change or to shift and to clean themselves up because they're not able to do it anyway. God, but they can respond to the good shepherd who is calling their name and saying, come, taste, and see that I'm good. Come and receive the benefits and the gift of my life and my death and my resurrection. Come and eat with no cost. Come and eat because you belong because I've done what you cannot do. So, Father, this morning, would we respond in praise and in worship as we sing, as we ponder, as we take the cup, as we eat the bread, as we remember, as you work and move and speak. God, would you be pleased and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.